Hey everybody, before we get going, I do have to thank some Patreon subscribers. We have Tara Prey, Jeff Mills, Alex Dixinormous Wills, <laughs> Emily Hitchcock, Kimberly Green, Julie Allen, finally, longtime listener, you know, just had to blow her some shit, and Christine Sullivan. And also on Venmo, gotta thank Crystal and Mike Derrickson for their for their donation as well. If you want to hit me on Venmo, one-time donation, just look for at MC Podcast. My Patreon is patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances. Hope everybody enjoyed the uh, the part one and two of Elvis Presley's life. I got a lot of good feedback on that, so glad everybody enjoyed that. And in the next 10 days, you will be getting your three episodes for Patreon as well. So got some good stuff coming up for you this month too, so... I appreciate everybody, and and with all that behind us, on with the show. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. it's a pretty interesting story on how this whole episode came about. I was uh, struggling to find some content. I mean, I get a lot of suggestions, obviously, but I always kind of try to keep it interesting and new, try to do things that not everybody else does. So I'm at the live show in Sevierville, which is just outside of Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, this last weekend. And I'm there with uh, Jerry and Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories. And by the way, thank you for everybody who turned out. It was an awesome show, awesome time, awesome weekend. Tennessee is absolutely beautiful. I love that state almost as much as Kentucky, almost. But this guy who's never even heard my podcast is like, hey, so you're into crime, right? And I said, yeah. And he's like, I'm from Illinois. You ever heard of the Starved Rock murders? And I'm like, no, I never have before. So he's like, look it up, dude. So I looked it up, immediately saved it. In the last two days, I have been researching my ass off to get this episode organized and out. Hopefully you guys like it. Before we do go on, though, I got to credit some sources. Got a website called American Hauntings. Got the Chicago Tribune. Got a documentary called The Starved Rock Murders by Hunter James Cox. And a book by Steve Stout titled The Starved Rock Murders. So if you want further, more detailed information, that is... Not available here. I highly suggest that book. Lots and lots of details mapped out very well. Here's how it goes. On March 14, 1960, Lillian Oding, who's 50, Francis Murphy, 47, and Mildred Lindquist, 50, they leave their Riverside Homes, which is a suburb of Chicago, for a four-day vacation at Starved Rock State Park near Utica, Illinois. They checked into the Starved Rock Lodge and ate lunch before heading out on an afternoon hike through the St. Louis Canyon. And this was a popular attraction and, uh, you know, it's got waterfalls, it's got hiking trails, all this stuff. So the employees at the Parks Lodge, they remember the arrival of the three ladies. Uh, Frances Murphy had parked her gray station wagon at the inn's parking area, and she and her friends had, you know, unloaded all their luggage and everything. They didn't have much luggage. They registered in two rooms, they dropped off their bags, and they ate lunch in the dining room, and at about uh, one o'clock, they took off. When they take off, they go out to do some bird watching, hiking. They're carrying a camera and a small pair of binoculars. 
the women walk away from the lodge and they have uh, rubber galoshes on too because the path was covered with uh, light snow and it's a little bit slippery. So, you know, they put those on, you know, and they're out there on the trails taking some pictures of each other, enjoying themselves. And then eventually they came to the dead end of St. Louis Canyon. The women were only about a mile away from the lodge. That was the last time anybody saw them alive. The first sign of something being wrong came when George Oding tried to call his wife at the lodge later uh, that night on the 14th. She had promised to call him, but when she didn't, he went ahead and called the lodge. And he was told by a staff on duty at the desk that his wife was not available. So... Mr. Oding is like, ah, oh, the lady's probably, you know, went out somewhere. And the staff member suggested that, you know, she would call in the morning. So he really wasn't worried about it. And he went ahead and went to bed. So the next morning, on Tuesday morning, March 15th, Mr. Oding calls the lodge again. And he asked to speak to his wife. And the employee who answered mistakenly told him that the three women had been seen at breakfast and were simply out of the lodge at that time. So Mr. Oding is like, okay, all right, as long as you saw him, we're good. And he's not worried about it anymore. So later that night, this storm hits the Illinois Valley. In St. Louis Canyon, six to eight inches of snow covered up all footprints, covered up bloodstains, covered up vital pieces of information around three dead bodies. Okay, it was near blizzard conditions, and it continued all night, and the roads were so bad it was almost impassable. So, the following day, March 16th, 1960, George Oding calls the lodge again, and this is on Wednesday morning, and his wife and their two friends were still not located. So at this time, the employees actually go into the women's rooms and found that the beds and bags were not touched, everything was still made. So they go out and check the parking lot, and Mrs. Murphy's station wagon hadn't been moved at all. So they tell this to Mr. Oding, and he realizes something is way wrong, and it's been almost two days now, and nobody's heard from his wife and her two friends. So as soon as he gets off the phone call, he calls a longtime friend of his by the name of Virgil W. Peterson, the operating director of the Chicago Crime Commission. Okay, so when Peterson hears about this shit, he contacts the state police and other law enforcement agencies all in the surrounding area. And within a few minutes, you know, the word spread about the missing women and it had reached the LaSalle County Sheriff's Office and Sheriff Ray Utsi began organizing search parties to go out and look for the women. And he actually joined one of the groups, too, that left, like, immediately for the park. So then a local newspaper reporter by the name of Bill Danley, he had just finished up a story in that day's newspaper, and he gets a tip about the disappearances. So he grabs his camera, and he goes out to these roads, I mean, <laughs> real bad snowy roads. Anybody in the upper Midwest knows exactly what I'm talking about. So he starts heading for the park and he noticed a boy running across an icy ravine toward the road. So he drives into a small parking area, and he found uh, a bunch of other kids. And these kids were talking about these bodies that they had found on the trails. Danley recognized the boys. They were uh, members of the nearby Illinois Youth Commission Forestry Camp. You know, he had been involved in that at one point in time so he pulls them aside to a nearby storage garage and he starts just pummeling these dudes with questions these kids so when these kids tell Danley about the bodies he calls the lodge and there's a bunch of cops and law enforcement officials there and uh then called the newspaper and he reported the the discovery of the bodies and in a matter of minutes right the story is flashing all over news wires like all over the country this was national news in 1960 and especially in LaSalle County where shit like this doesn't does not happen it never happens right so this is a huge deal so here's what the boys found listen very carefully because this this all comes into play and it's uh some of these details are important for later on 
they found three mutilated women that were lying side by side, partially covered with snow, and they were bound. They were lying on their backs under a small ledge, and their lower clothing had been torn away and their legs spread open. Each of them had been bludgeoned in the head, combining about a total of a hundred times, and two of the bodies were tied together with heavy white twine. Okay, They were covered with blood, and their exposed legs were blackened because of bruising, and also their coats were found between their legs. So state police detectives, they get there as soon as they can, and they start searching the area. And the only thing that they didn't search was the floor of the overhang where the bodies were found. Okay, the entire canyon was covered in, like I said, six to eight inches of snow. And what they did was they took blowtorches out there and they started melting all the snow so they didn't mess up any evidence. And when they did that, they found signs that there was a violent struggle before these women were killed. So at least one, if not two of them, put up a hell of a fight. So Mrs. Murphy's camera was found about 10 feet from the victims. The case that it was in was smeared with blood and its strap was also broken. They also found the one woman's binoculars and they were broken with blood on them. So a short distance away, LaSalle County's uh, state's attorney, Harland Warren, came across a frozen tree limb that had blood all over it. And uh, the snow beneath this tree limb was also covered with blood. And then, you know, they realized, well, shit, you know, the, some of the splinters and the breaking of the tree limb matched with the wounds. And they realized that this was more than likely the murder weapon. And they f start following this trail, right? Where, I mean, it's just a, a blood trail, basically. So they start realizing that the women had actually been killed deeper in the canyon, and their bodies had been dragged and positioned under this rock ledge. The bodies remained there for hours. Pathologists and state crime lab officials, they end up showing up. When night finally came, they got their stuff done, and they got uh, lanterns and flashlights, and they got the victims removed on cloth stretchers. Then the bodies were taken to the Hulse Funeral Home in Ottawa, where they were examined and autopsied. After the bodies are examined, they say that the women had obviously been molested, but because of the cold and the limitations of medical techniques at the time, they really couldn't find any evidence of rape. Now, there was one news report that I watched from the original, like, 1960 news flash of it, where the reporter said two out of the three women were, in fact, raped. You know, so take that as you will. I'm going to go ahead and uh, take the, uh, the examiner's word for it here. Now, the doctors were able to determine the time of death, and it was shortly after they had had their lunch. So we know that when they left the lodge at about 1 o'clock, they were not alive much longer after that. But the thing about it is, too, is there's no motive that was ever suggested for these murders. And they dismissed robbery because the women had left their money behind in their rooms when they uh, went for their hike. And, some, and their jewelry was still on them, like their rings, you know, watches. And these were upper-class women, so obviously that shit was worth some money. So the investigation starts going nowhere real fast. There were not very many clues to go on. We do have the evidence of the twine that was used to tie them up, and one of the women had hair in her hand when she died, and she had some skin underneath her nails as well. So they knew that she had obviously put up this fight. I can't remember right offhand which one of the women was the one with the hair in her hand. So what happens now is everything starts getting confusing, okay, because all these jurisdictions want to maintain this case. You have state's attorney Harland Warren, and this guy is a very hardworking, he's a respected official, and he's technically in charge, but the state police 
maintain their authority uh, because the murders were committed on park property. So the two law enforcement agencies clashed, and Warren was in a bind because of this. So he was forced to deal with the state authorities because the officials in LaSalle County, they had no experience with this. There was nothing that had ever happened like this before. So state authorities had more experience, so he's like, okay, I'm going to work with you guys on this. And like I said, man, this really shocked the area. I mean, this was a quiet place. People were scared out of their minds because there's somebody or one or two or three people who killed three women for what we know of is no reason other than possible rape. Okay, so people are freaking out. They're locking their doors. Hardware stores in the area sold out of deadbolt locks. Sporting goods stores started selling guns off the shelves. The Starved Rock Lodge that the women were stayed at, they had almost no guests. I mean, people would literally go miles out of their way to drive around this area because they were so scared of this shit. They didn't know what was going on. This, there's Nobody's been caught yet. You also have newspapers, you got radio, you got television, and they're all reporting just the slow progress of the investigation and how everybody's freaking out, basically, you know, using using the panic button, right? But because of this, because of this media, the case had a lot of pressure on it, and then the police have all this pressure to make progress, and especially Harlan Warren's county office. And he was doing everything in his power to move the investigation forward. And as you're going to find out, this guy literally, I give my hats off to this guy, man. Just absolute mad respect for this guy. Because he's having a hard time coping with the pressure because it's an election year. And money also started becoming a problem because the budget on this investigation was going through the roof. I mean, you have man hours, you have money. He actually at one time requested an extra $30,000 from either the state or the feds, and they were like, no, no, we're not giving you any money, any more money to solve this case. And he's like, well, what the fuck do you want me to do, man? And like I said, it's an election year too, so this dude's like, no, we need to solve this case. And for him, it wasn't even about the an election year. It was about solving this case, as you're going to come to find out. So by July, this is four months after the murders, after the bodies are discovered, July of 1960, okay, Harlan Warren is still under pressure to solve these murders. They have no leads, they have very little clues, so he's like super frustrated, and he's pretty much over it, okay? He's not even a detective, he's a lawyer, but he decides to just go for it, and he asks himself these clues that the clues that was left behind the main one being the twine that the women were tied up with this has to be the only and the biggest clue so he uses his own money and he goes and buys a microscope and he starts to uh, study the twine on his own and after he researches it and starts studying it he realized that there were two kinds of twine that were used a 20-ply cord, and a 12-ply cord. So this is pretty much the only information this guy has. So he starts looking for help, you know, because he's like, okay, I got a lead. I need help. So instead of choosing someone from his staff, he handpicked two county detectives that would report to him and only him. And these two guys were Deputy Bill Dummett, and I hope I said that dude's last name right, Bill Dummett, D-U-M-M-E-T-T, and Wayne Hess. Okay, they were both trustworthy, and they were both super smart. And Warren knew that these two guys would not leak any details to the press or anything that Warren was doing on his own. So six months after the initial murders in September of 1960, these two deputies, Bill Dummett and Wayne Hess, they start thinking of the most logical place to start the search for the source of the twine, and this would be the closest place around, which was the Starved Rock Lodge. So Warren, Warren goes there with the deputies, and they meet with the manager of the lodge's kitchen. 
And Warren straight up holds up this twine. He's like, hey, where can I find this kind of twine at? And within a couple of minutes, they find out where. This twine was used in the kitchen for wrapping food. So Dumb and Hess, they go through the lodge purchasing records and they track down uh, the twine's manufacturer. And they find out that the twine used to bind the murder victims had been taken without question from the supply in the lodge's kitchen. So Warren had always suspected that the killer either worked at or was at the lodge or had access to it, and it was absolutely confirmed at this point. But by this time, okay, it is a fact that all of the lodge employees had been given polygraph tests, and all of them had passed, and they had been given more than one test at this point as well. So Harlan Warren's like, how accurate are these tests? Because somebody knows something, somebody's got to be lying, blah, blah, blah. So he decides to run some of his own tests, and he hired a specialist from a Chicago firm called the John Reed Institute. So Warren goes and he calls back in all the employees who had worked during the week of the murder, one by one. He tracked down guests that were there, tracked down delivery guys, everybody that he could, Calls them in one by one. They go to this small cabin located near the lodge and uh, they submitted to these polygraph exams. And uh, the first dozen or so were quickly cleared and uh, warned in the deputies. You know, they start wondering if they're wasting their time, right? Then Bill Dummett brought in one of the last people who was a former dishwasher named Chester Weger. When Weger's polygraph test was done... Warren noticed that the examiner's face was just stark, blank, and pale, right? And as soon as Weger walks out of the cabin, the technician looks at him and says, That's your man. So, who is Chester Weger? Chester Weger, at the time, was 21 years old. He was a fairly small man. He was skinny. He was a small guy. He had a wife, he had two young children, his daughter was like three, and his son was an infant. And he had worked at that park until that summer in July. And that's when he quit to go into business with his dad as a uh, as a house painter. But Weger had claimed that he was writing letters at the lodge at the time of the murders. And then there's another statement that I saw written somewhere else that he said he was in uh, a neighboring town at his parents' house at the time of the murders. So you have two conflicting stories. I've read them the same amount of time in, in different places. So either way, this dude has a pretty weak alibi. Take it as you will. Never really made an impression on the investigators, from what I understand. And Warren starts intensifying the investigation of this guy. And strangely, Weger cooperated with him. Had absolutely no problem. He did everything he was told. He answered every question. He submitted to several polygraph tests. No problem whatsoever. He even gave up a piece of a, a buckskin jacket that he owned because there were some uh, dark stains on it. And uh, he gave it up so it could be examined. And it later turned out that those dark stains were in fact human blood. But in 1960, it couldn't be typed or matched to any of the victims. So, September 23rd, 1960... Warren asks Weger to submit to more polygraph tests, and again, Weger agrees. And he was given an entire series of tests, and he failed every single one of them. And the thing about it is, is you can't use polygraphs, especially in 1960, as a form of prosecution. You can only use it as a focus into an investigation, so once that jacket was determined to be stained with human blood, Warren put Weger under constant surveillance by the state police. And Warren, along with his deputy Dummett and Hess, they start checking into Weger's past and uh, also into similar crimes in that area in the past, you know, thinking, okay, what has this guy possibly done in the past to where this might have escalated to murder this time? 
So the whole time they're doing the surveillance, they're looking into his past, and Uyghur knows that he's being followed. He knows he's under surveillance, right? And when he would go places, he would go out the back doors, he would make the cops chase him and follow him, just basically screwing with them. And he went on a hunting trip once while they were following him, and he uh, even turned around and pointed his hunting rifle at him just to just to be an asshole, right? So, so now while they're looking into past cases, the detectives, they remembered another rape that had happened previously. And Dummett comes across this reported rape and robbery that took place in Matheson State Park, which is about two miles from the scene of the crime. And this happened in 1959, and it was about a year before the three women were killed. And it was a teenage couple who were on their first date. On their way back to their car, after they get done taking a hike, they are almost to their car, and a guy steps out of nowhere with a hunting rifle. And he's got this hunting rifle in his hand, and he's got a bullet in his mouth. And he orders the guy to get to the ground, ties him up, robs him, then rapes the girl. The suspect ends up getting away, and, and the two victims end up getting away as well. They go directly to the sheriff's office, and the detectives separated the two. They put the young guy in one room, the young girl in the other room, and they're interrogating both of them. And I shit you not, at a certain point, the sheriff's office told them to leave because they said they didn't believe them. They straight up are like, you two are lying, leave. So, the report was filed, but absolutely nothing was done about it, okay, because the sheriff's office did not believe the story. So, Dummett goes to Warren, and he says, I want to talk to this girl. I need to talk to this girl. So, Warren is like, all right, go do it. So, Dummett goes, and he finds this young female victim, okay, and he takes her a stack of mugshots because Uyghur had a little bit of a juvenile past as well. As she's going through these, she comes across Chester Uyghur's picture, and she screams. She just starts screaming. Okay, and then they take into account his juvenile record of robbery, and uh, there were some unspecified sexual crimes as well. So with the positive identification of his mugshot with this young girl's rape, Warren knows that he could easily have him arrested, okay, have Uyghur arrested, okay, he's forced to wait though. Now there's a new problem he has to deal with. With all the time and energy involved in the investigation, Warren really hadn't worked much on his re-election campaign. So if he books Uyghur on rape and murder charges before the election... Defense attorneys are basically going to say that he had just done it hastily and it's a stunt to retain his job. So he just leaves Uyghur under surveillance and uh, he doesn't want to jeopardize the case against him for the sake of his own re-election. Warren is basically going to try to run on his record of um, cleaning up gambling and prostitution out of LaSalle County. You know, he was in office for eight years and he had done a good job of that. So he's like, screw it. I'm not wor worrying about, like, I'm not going to jeopardize this case for the sake of re-election. And then lo and behold, his opponent ends up using the Starved Rock unsolved murder case against him during the campaign. And uh, he ended up losing by like 3,500 votes, right? And Warren still had time in office, though, to pursue this case against Uyghur because you're not immediately kicked out of office. You know, you got like two months left. So even though he had very little evidence and it wasn't very strong, he goes and gets an arrest warrant for Uyghur. On November 16th, 1960, the state's attorney... Harland Warren orders Uyghur's arrest for the 1959 rape and robbery, and he orders Hess and Dummett to go pick him up. And um, Warren was very careful about his plans about how to interrogate Uyghur before basically telling him about the triple homicide murder charges that they were going to bring on him to. 
So Hessen Dummett arrived at his apartment, and they said that they had some more questions for him, and they said nothing about arrest warrants, and uh, they just said, just come to the courthouse with us. So once they have him in custody, the officers start questioning him about the rape and also start talk asking him about the murders at Starved Rock. So they get him in this courthouse, and they're basically interrogating him in this room. And they even bring in the three eyewitnesses from the rape and robbery in 1959. They were James Supan, Colleen Thornton, and Vicki Templeton. And uh, they all three had identified Chester Weger at this point. So they kept him in this interrogation room until past midnight. All right, and then finally, Weger, he stops in mid-sentence in one of the questions, and he says, I'd like to see my family. So the cops go pick up his parents and bring them to the courthouse, and Dummett Hess uh, give the parents a few minutes alone with, with Chester Wiegand. And then the parents walk out of the room, the detectives go back in, and they start really messing with him, okay? They start telling him how his wife is going to cheat on him when he goes to prison, and Chester Wieger actually started crying, and he says, All right, I did it. Wieger confesses to the rape and robbery, and then he confesses to the triple homicide as well. And here's one of the things he said in his confession. Quote, I was taking a walk through the woods when I turned into the canyon and I spotted them coming toward me. I got the idea to rob them. I grabbed at what I thought was a purse one of the women was carrying and the strap broke. So then they bring his wife in to see him with his, with his two kids. They have two court reporters in there who are typing up the interrogation questions and the confession. The two court reporters were in there, I believe, the entire time. They bring in a judge. They bring in other police officers, a photographer, a medical doctor. They had a total of 14 different people that went in there to talk to him or, you know, photograph him or whatever the case was. So in this official statement by Deputy Hess, which was taken the next day, he stated, quote, when Bill stepped out of the back room in the state's attorney office to show Mr. and Mrs. Weger to the door so they could go home, I could see that something was bothering Chester. I said, Chester, why don't you tell me about it? There are just two of us here. Just tell me about it. He said, all right, I did it. I got scared. I tried to grab their pocketbook. They fought, and I hit them. Now, the pocketbook that Weger claimed that he was trying to take was actually Mrs. Murphy's camera, with the one with the broken strap. So, while this is going on, the confession is being transcribed, and it's signed by Weger. And remember that over the course of the next couple of days, Chester Weger confessed multiple times. Not just one time, multiple times. And during the confessions, he was asked why he had dragged the bodies under the overhang of St. Louis Canyon. And Weger said that he had spotted a small airplane flying over the park. Weger said that he was afraid it was a state police plane, so he moved the bodies so that they could not be seen from above. Now, a few days later, this plane flying over the park was confirmed by the pilot's testimony and logbook. And it had flown over the spot at about the time of the murders. And remember this, okay? Chester Weger straight up said there was a red and white plane flying over. So the cops didn't even know about a plane flying over. And they go to the local airfield and they the first red and white plane they see, they go get the pilot, they look through that logbook and everything is confirmed. So prosecutors are saying Weger knew things only the killer could have known. You know, such as the fact of the red and white airplane that flew over the canyon, you know, the day of the murders, at about the time of the murders. And like I said, cops never contacted the pilot. They didn't know about this plane until Weger said he saw the plane. So on November 18th, 1960, at 9 a.m., Chester Weger agrees to go to the park and reenact the killings for a crowd of policemen and reporters at the canyon. All in all, there was, I think, right around 30 people there that he reenacted these murders for. And he says he tried to rob them, 
and he found out that the purse was a camera and then he begged the women to give him a chance to get away and they agreed. Then he started following them after that and Mrs. Murphy saw him following and basically came after him and he picked up this broken tree limb and he clubbed her with it. And then the other two women let him tie them up but he was scared that they were going to get away so he beat them to death too. And they also said, you know, why did you rip off their clothes if you were just trying to rob them? And he says, I wanted to make it look like a sex maniac had committed the crimes, but most believe that he still did rape them. So the LaSalle County Grand Jury indicts Uyghur for the murder of the three women and names him in three other incidents charging robbery, larceny, assault with a deadly weapon, and rape in two crimes in Matheson State Park, just, a cut, like I said, a couple miles from Starved Rock. Then all of a sudden, a couple days later, Chester Weger meets with his court-appointed attorney, and then he changes his story and says that he is innocent of all the charges. And Weger claims that the two deputies, Dummett and Hess, had coerced a confession from him by threatening him with a gun. He says the cops had the confession already typed out and said that if he didn't confess, they were going to blow his brains out and say he tried to escape. And I know that sounds pretty wild, you know, and it's not unheard of by any means. All right, let's be realistic here. But 30 years later, he changes his story again and says that the cops had beat him up for the confession. But the thing about it is, too, that we have to remember, we had 14 people that were in and out of the, that room, and you had two court reporters typing up a confession and the interrogation as it's happening. So, did they not see anything? Did they not say anything? What What's the deal with that? It's... It's hard to believe this, and that's the thing with this case, is there are a lot of people that think this guy is innocent and that he never did these crimes, and we will entertain that idea towards the end as well. And he says that he lied in his confession. He said he had been so scared that he signed the papers anyway, and then he also said that Dummett had fed him the information about the airplane. He also said that before the reenactment in the canyon that the cops told him exactly what to say while he was reenacting these murders. Now we got to remember there are 30 cops and reporters at least and none of them said anything about that especially reporters like don't get me wrong we all know that they wanted this crime solved but a reporter wants a juicy story and if there's something weird some kind of false confession conspiracy of crooked cops. Reporters in 1960 are actually going to report on it. You know what I mean? But the thing about it was, is everybody that was there said that this, there's no way. Like, this guy went through the motions, didn't hesitate, didn't screw up any details. He went right into it. And, I mean, they were out there for a couple hours while he sent here saying every single detail of how he did this crime. Now, if you're coerced and a cop is telling you all this information, you have to think, this guy's going to have to stop to think about it at some point. He's not going to remember all this, all these details of something that he didn't do. And the fact that he says Dummett fed him the information about the airplane, right? Well, cops didn't even know about the airplane until Chester Weger told them about it. That is a fact right there. So then another couple days later, Uyghur comes out and he says that because of the threat of the electric chair, he entertained the offer of a deal by the county authorities, which pretty much compelled him to confess because he didn't want to get the electric chair. So he ended up confessing to the Starved Rock State Park triple murder, right? So about a month later, on December 19, 1960, Weger pleads not guilty to the triple murder. And then a couple more months later, February 7, 1961, Weger's three-year-old daughter is basically barred from attending her father's murder trial because 
they thought that having a little girl in there watching her father's murder trial, that the jury would take it easy on him and they wouldn't give him the electric chair in front of his children. All right, so she, his three-year-old daughter is barred from the actual murder trial. So on February 27th, 1961, after three hours of cross-examination, Weir denies any involvement in the murder of the women, and he states, I never killed anybody. Now you gotta remember, this trial, alright, gained, it was national, national news. And then the judge, a guy named Leonard Hoffman, knows that the prosecution, which was Robert E. Richardson and another guy named uh, Anthony Recuglia, Rasuglia, not 100% sure how to say that last name. The judge is like, hey, you two prosecutors have never tried a murder case before. Why don't you have Harlan Warren help you out? I'm going to name him special prosecutor for this case and just this case only. And Richardson, who had taken Warren's job, was like, nope, I'm not, we're not going to do this. So the two prosecutors decided to file charges against Uyghur for only one of the three murders. And the reason they did this is in case there was a mistrial or an acquittal, they could still file charges against him for the other two murders. And they were seeking the death penalty in this case. They wanted to put this dude in the chair. So on April 3rd, 1961, which was Chester Uyghur's 22nd birthday, he is sentenced to a term of life in prison. And after Judge Hoffman dismissed the jurors, the reporters asked them if they knew that a life sentence in Illinois meant that, you know, Uyghur would be eligible for parole, you know, in 10 or 15 years. And the jurors didn't know that. They were like, are you shitting me? Like, what the hell? They had no idea. So some of them even went back and said that if they had known Uyghur was not really being sent away for the rest of his life, they would have voted for the electric chair. So there was a lack of knowledge in Illinois law in this case. And the prosecutor's failure to properly instruct the jury ended up saving Chester Uyghur's life. And if Harlan Warren would have been with the prosecutors as a special prosecutor, Chester Wiegand would have gotten the electric chair. And they ended up convicting him of the murder of Lillian Oding. And uh, like I said, the jury was made up of seven women and five men. They did. They gave him life imprisonment. And as Weger is getting led out of the courtroom, two sheriff deputies reported hearing Weger say, You'll never hold me. And one of the jurors, a woman named Nancy Porter, she even said uh, after the trial, we thought we were inflicting a penalty worse than the electric chair. So on September 28, 1962, Illinois Supreme Court upholds Uyghur's conviction and his life sentence. On February 8, 1963, the rape and robbery charges coming from that 1959 case are dismissed since Uyghur was not brought to trial on the charges within four months of his arrest, which is required by law. So on April 17, 1963, the state gives a variety of reasons for abandoning efforts to get the death penalty for Uyghur, including the reluctance of some juries to impose the death penalty. They were still trying to get this dude the chair. That same month and that same year in 63, in April 63, while serving his life sentence, and just at the beginning of it, Chester Weger writes an autobiography and gives the 48-page manuscript to a Chicago Tribune reporter. And in it, Weger proclaims his innocence. And he here's a quote from it. Now there's nothing in the world I needed bad enough to kill for on March 14, 1960. Now before we get into the remaining part of this, Let's take a word from our sponsor. So as you know, AMC Shutter is one of my longest and favorite sponsors. And AMC Shutter is a premium video service brought to you by AMC Networks, offering an unbeatable selection of expertly curated horror, supernatural and thrillers, uncut and commercial free, with exclusive and original titles you won't find anywhere else. So, you need to go start your free trial today. 
you can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing, human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment, and it is considered the Netflix for horror. There are new spine-tingling thrillers, shocking horrors, and edge-of-your-seat suspense added weekly. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices, including iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and Android devices. Me personally, I'm an Android guy for life. I don't do the iPhone thing. I downloaded the app and I watch it all the time. After posting episodes, I'll sit down, pull something up. They have so much stuff. Uh, Different movies, you have old classics, you have modern favorites. So get started streaming the best horror and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes titles like the acclaimed Tigers Are Not Afraid, One Cut of the Dead, Revenge, and the Creepshow TV series produced by Greg Nicotero and based on the famous films by George Romero. If you want to try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code MCPODCAST. That is Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R. Use the promo code MCPODCAST. Get 30 days for free with no worries. They got Creepshow, which is an original Shudder series. You got Cursed Films, a Shudder original again, The Deadlands, Shudder original, Three from Hell by Rob Zombie, which is an exclusive on Shudder right now, man. I'm telling you, I am a Rob Zombie fan when it comes to movies. Three from Hell is absolutely awesome, especially if you like the other Rob Zombie movies. You got The Room, which is a Shudder exclusive. One Cut of the Dead, Shudder exclusive. You got Horror Noir, which is a... Shudder original documentary, Lizzie, which is a Shudder exclusive, Mandy, which is an old school starring Nicolas Cage movie, you got Dario Argento, you got horror comedies, classic slasher movies, you got the Vengeance is Hers collection, you know what I'm saying, so literally there is something for everybody on here, I know my listeners have been enjoying this uh, while they've been my sponsor, and to be honest with you, I enjoy it too, go to Shudder.com. S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com. Get 30 days free by using the promo code MCPODCAST. So like I mentioned previously, there are a lot of people who believe that Uyghur is innocent. And what they point to is a deathbed confession that allegedly occurred in 1982 or 1983. A Chicago police sergeant named Mark Gibson submitted an affidavit in 2006 that recounted this confession. It was being used in court to support a motion for new DNA tests in the Starved Rock murder case. In the affidavit, Gibson stated that he and his partner, who was in 2006 already deceased, were called to Rush St. Luke's Presbyterian Hospital to see a terminally ill patient who wanted to clear her conscience. The affidavit stated, The woman was lying in a hospital bed. I went over toward her, and she grabbed hold of my hand. She indicated that when she was younger, she had been with her friends at a state park, and something happened. Then the woman told Gibson that she was at a park in Utica, and things quote-unquote got out of hand. Multiple victims were killed, and they dragged the bodies. So Mark Gibson said that the woman's daughter cut the interview short and started shouting that her mother was out of her mind and ordered the police out of the room. In the affidavit, Gibson did not provide the exact date of the interview or the woman's name, but said he passed the information along to a detective. The affidavit did not address whether or not there was any follow-up or why the confession was not presented until 2006. The alleged confession was not allowed into the court hearings, although new DNA tests were ordered in the case. However, they failed to clear Uyghur of anything because the samples had been corrupted over the years. On July 8, 2004, here's how that happened. DNA testing on the items, including Uyghur's coat and hair found in the victim's fist, 
shows the evidence has been contaminated after Uyghur's conviction in 1961 and after appeals were exhausted, prosecutors allowed school groups, civic clubs, and student journalists to handle and examine the evidence. Wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Wow. That's about all I can really say about that. So in June 2007, the Illinois governor denies Uyghur's clemency petition. Then in December of 2016, Uyghur is Illinois' third longest-held inmate in a state prison, and he is denied parole again in an 11-2 vote. Two years later, November of 2018, Uyghur falls one vote short of getting paroled, and this is the 23rd time that he has been denied parole. Then, on November 21st, 2019, on his 24th try, in a 9-4 vote, Uyghur is granted parole. State officials were uh, seeking to have Uyghur evaluated under the state's Sexually Violent Persons Law, which allows for continued civil commitment if a person is deemed sexually violent. And then, on February 13th, 2020, Uyghur's release from prison had already been delayed 90 days because the uh, the Illinois Attorney General, they sought to have him evaluated under the state's, like I said, the, the Sexually Violent Persons Commitment Act. And uh, the that law requires proof that a person suffers from a mental disorder and that it is substantially probable he or she will commit acts of sexual violence as a result. So, a spokesperson for the Attorney General's office said experts who evaluated Uyghur found he did not meet the legal criteria, and so they will not file a petition in court arguing he should be involuntarily committed. Under the law, Uyghur could have been held indefinitely in a secured facility in the custody of the Illinois Department of Human Services for sex offender treatment. About a week later, on February 21st, 2020, Uyghur, at the age of 80, is released from Illinois State Prison. And he had this to say about it. They ruined my life. They locked me up for 60 years for something I've never done. And that was about one of the few things that he said upon getting released. Let's look at some facts real quick. Now, because of the skin under the fingernails of one of the victims, and the hair in her hand. Police set up roadblocks all around the area, looking for somebody with scratches possibly on their face, right? They never found anybody. Now on March 15th, 1960, the day after the murders, Lodge employees later tell police, now this is later, that Chester Weger arrived at work with scratches on his face the day after the murders. Now, like I said, there was evidence of a violent fight between the victims and the murderer. At least two of the women were more than likely raped. Now, initially, local police said the murders were committed by at least two men. At the beginning, too, the only leads came from photographs that were taken on the camera. A photo in the camera was later developed, okay, so LaSalle County Sheriff's Department says triple exposure picture shows a dim outline of a man in one of the pictures who was assumed to be the murderer. The state police said there was no man in the picture, so they took the photo to Ottawa, had all kinds of investigators look at it, and the county sheriff is sitting here saying, no, this man is like 5'9", 160 pounds, right here he is in the picture, but as it turned out, it was an overlapped picture because of the camera they were using. The camera at the time had one of those twisty knobs at the top, right? So if you didn't crank this knob enough, or if you cranked it too far, you were overlapping pictures. And as it turns out, they had overlapped one of the pictures where uh, one of the women's husbands was in the picture. And it like showed up in the background behind a damn tree. And it really did look like somebody was standing beside a tree but when you compared the pictures together you could you could totally see what uh what they were talking about so just remember that if uh you know you see all those grainy old weird 
paranormal or uh, Sasquatch pictures or whatever. Remember, you know, like around 1960s, 1950s, yada, yada. Here's a good chance that's what happened. Here's some some other odd little facts. They found a key case at the scene on one of the pathways. And this is on one of the pathways where the women are murdered. Now, this key case may have been made in Canada. And there was a car seen at the lodge with Manitoba plates on the day of the murders. Now, nothing actually came of this. But... Is it so far out of the realm of possibility to believe that somebody from Canada might have been staying there? The dude could have dropped it a week before that. Hard telling. But that should be known that that car with Manitoba plates was only there for a day. And then they found this key case that was more than likely, they said, made in Canada on the pathway uh, where the women were, uh, were murdered at. Now, let's also remember that some people also think that Chester didn't act alone. The son of the guy who ran the lodge, a guy named George Spiros, he was sent off to Europe after the murders and didn't come back until years and years later. But you also got to consider why wouldn't Chester say something to get his time reduced? The guy was in prison for 60 years and never mentioned anything. Him and George were friends. All right. I think he was a couple years younger than than Chester, and he had uh, worked at the lodge as well. But there were receipts from a store close by that put George Spiros there at the time of the crime, so he had a fairly good alibi. He was also questioned at least five times during the investigation. There was no evidence linking him to the crime. But in May 2005... George Spiros killed his dog and himself, and Uyghur's attorney said she had filed documents that named him as an official suspect two weeks before his death. But nobody knows if George Spiros actually knew about these documents, and most people believe the reason for his suicide was because he had recently been diagnosed with cancer. So... Usually I don't give my opinion on cases like this. I just give you guys the information, you know, this, that, and the other. In a case like this, if you go to, if you go to YouTube and, and type in anything about these murders, watch news reports, watch the documentary if you want to, just roll through the comments. There are so many people saying Chester was innocent, he's innocent, yada, yada. I even replied to a couple comments on there. Nobody liked my replies or replied back, so there's that. But weighing the evidence. On one hand, you got, yes, he did it. The other hand, you got, no, he didn't. One hand outweighs the other quite a damn bit. Now, could he have been innocent? Yeah, it's definitely possible. To be honest with you, I wish we would have not corrupted that damn DNA shit. And then we would have been able to put all this to rest. And if he was innocent, we could have gave this guy an extra 15 years out of prison to try to get his life back. But, like he confessed, he reenacted the crimes at the scene. He's lucky he didn't get the electric chair. He's currently residing in a halfway house. And the guy who wrote the book, the guy named Steve Stout, has a very good point. And he said that, it's a very fucked up thing in our in our justice system, right? You, you know, we all know the justice system is pretty fucked. I literally just posted an article on uh, the podcast Facebook page about a guy who was charged with 64 counts of, like, soliciting children, like, molestation and shit. Literally, the prosecution dropped 63 of them. They charged him with one, and they gave him a year in jail. Shit you not. Justice system is fucked, let's be honest. But... Part of being paroled is admitting guilt, all right, is admitting that you did something wrong. The crazy thing about it is that when Chester would go up for parole, like the guy who wrote this book had interviewed him several times in prison, he says, Chester, why didn't you just tell the parole board that you did it? He's like, you could have been paroled, you know, in 1990, He's like, part of per- being paroled is admitting guilt. That's part of rehabilitation. And Chester straight up kept saying, he's like, I'm not going to 
admit to something that I didn't do. Now, whether he was just stubborn, whether he really didn't do it, I don't know. All I know is detectives interviewed at least 254 people, they followed 2,115 leads, and they spent over 21,000 man hours on this investigation. And I will say this again, Harlan Warren, my hat's off to you, sir. You did not quit. You said, fuck this re-election. I'm not risking, I'm not jeopardizing this case. But that's about all I got for you. Now it's time to do a little, uh, little house cleaning. Social media, where can you find me? You can stop by and like the Facebook page. Uh, just look for Mysterious Circumstances. You can join the group. If you join the group, I mean, you can join the group. If you don't answer the questions, you're not going to get in the group, all right? Uh, you can find me on social media at Mysterious underscore podcast. You can find me on Twitter at PodcastMC. You can also follow my personal uh, Instagram as well, which there's a link on the podcast Instagram. All I ask is that you have a real account. Like, if, don't be a creeper. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't mind getting messages. That's fine. Just don't be fucking weird. Uh, what else is there? Yeah, it's about all I got for you. Um, stick around for some reviews if you'd like to. See you folks on the flip side. See what kind of reviews we got here from America. Two stars. Dusted. Robot. Great subject matter, but his voice is so monotone, it's hard to listen to. I don't know. I think monotone voices are kind of soothing. Soothing. No, really, I got fucking personality and charisma for days, bro. Like, you know, whatever. Oh, this motherfucker. Here we go. One star. AP Bear. And it's a bunch of Z's, and it's like, this guy just drones on and on in a monotone voice. Great subject matter, but wow. So, here's the deal. When I posted that in the uh, in the Facebook group, <laughs> which I do, I post my all my reviews in the Facebook group, and if you like it, you do. If you don't, you don't. But check this out. So, my good friend Heather, who is also a listener, when I post these, I don't know how the hell she finds this shit. So she'll search the username for <laughs> these iTunes reviews. I don't know how she does it, but she found this guy named AP Bear from Austin, Texas, 36-year-old male, on a website called CuddleComfort.com. A little bit about him. In lieu of writing some awkward paragraph about myself, I'll supply a potentially more awkward list of descriptors and things I like. All flavors of film, strategic board games, science and what it has done, authenticity, Broadway shows, feminism, the obligatory Netflix binge, spicy foods, Alamo Drafthouse, cuddling, witty absurd and ridiculous humor, museums, learning and experiencing whatever I can, building computers, wine and cheese, gaming of the PC persuasion or otherwise, Wes Anderson, symphonies, learning to cook, down comforters, glass blowing, traveling, quality relationships, cycling, lemonade, my cat, Neil Gaiman, cold weather, reading, adding concoctions of spice to food, taking jokes too far, and TED Talks. Now listen, alright, if this is the same fucking guy, listen man, I know you're starving for cuddles, but listen bro, like, I appreciate you saying I have interesting content because I really do. Alright? I, I fucking know that. Some of the shit, you know, some people don't like because I cover a lot of different genres. But, bro, don't, you know, I, I, I just hope you like this sense of humor that goes too far because it's ridiculous. But, anyway, in lieu of that bad review, as you guys always know, AP Barry, you can go fuck yourself. Mr. Dusted Robot. Uh, you can, once you, once you call him, you guys can cuddle each other. Next one is five stars from Madison1809. 
Great podcast. Happy I found this. Episodes are greatly researched and detailed. Narration is on point. Keep up the good work. Uh, this one is from Tinkerbell. Five stars from one Hoosier, born and living in Indy, to another. In one of the first podcasts I listened to, you read off a review that was extremely negative about you. You sound insincere and uncaring now. I hope you don't take this as an insult because I absolutely love this character. But uh, when you read the post, the face of Jack Nicholson sitting outside on a nice day as he talks to the lawyers representing the men on trial, his attitude completely changes on the stand and draws out this let me break it down to where you might understand the intelligence of what I just said. Freaking great. I laugh out loud as I'm listening to and grocery shopping. Congrats. Well, Tinkerbell, by God. I appreciate you and fucking right on indie, man. Hope you guys are doing good down there. I know up here in the fort, we're uh, rocking and rolling like no other. Madison, also, thank you very much. I'll try to keep up the uh, good work. Um, okay, five stars. Melody Allen, uh, just beginning, just began listening to podcasts, enjoying Justin's podcast. Very interesting, and I have followed up on one of them. A Haunting in Michigan. I actually watched the episode on Amazon Prime after listening to the podcast. Very cool, and thanks so much. Ignore the haters. Yeah, fuck the haters. And yeah, that is a really that is a really great like half-assed documentary. I hate debunking shit because I want it to be real, but at the same time, I really enjoy debunking shit too. So I'm pretty sure this one. I think I think this is a new one. Yeah, this one is from UK. It says Shaz loves podcast five stars. Fabulous podcast series. I'd say this is definitely one of the best podcasts I've listened to, due in no small part to Justin. The research he does on the cases and highlights, uh, he highlights is top-notch, and he doesn't waffle on about nothing like other podcasters. He is very passionate, and that might not be uh, to everyone's taste, but I would highly recommend giving Mysterious Circumstances a go. I would also like to thank Justin for taking a chunk out of your day last weekend to talk to an old British lady about Billy the Kid. Highly recommend. A plus 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 plus. <laughs> Honestly, I could talk about Billy the Kid all damn day. Literally all damn day. Just a fascinating guy and seriously interesting topic. So I have absolutely no problem with that. But thank you. I appreciate that review. And uh, we got nothing new from Australia. Let's look at Canada right quick. Uh, nope, nothing new from Canada. So if you guys do like the podcast, please um, take time, leave a review. Hopefully a good one. You know, if you don't like it, that's fine. There's plenty of other podcasts out there, different styles, different types. There's something out there for everybody. So that being said, I'm out.